No, it's good. It's good. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll pick up in verse 17. That's where we left off last week. 1 Corinthians 11, 17. I want to make an announcement before we start class. Um, there's been a decision made by the really the education committee or the vision group. But anyway, Wednesday night, there will be regular Bible classes. So there won't be a devotional aspect as far as a Thanksgiving program. There'll just be the regular Bible classes. There'll be the devotional after the song, of course. But Neil will be teaching on the book of Matthew and the college classes and all the others will be just as they've been. So just keep that in mind for this Wednesday. There will be the regular Bible classes. That'll probably be announced again. It was supposed to make it to the announcements this morning, but it didn't. But now you know, and we'll say something else about it later. All right, so we've got this Sunday and next Sunday, and that's it, and we're in chapter 11. And so maybe you can see the problem we have. We've got 16 chapters to go. So the goal for today is to do chapter 11, 17 through 34, and really put 12, 13, and 14 together, and as best we can, try to summarize them because they all deal with the same thing with spiritual gifts. And so let's begin with what we have in chapter 11 and verse 17, which is really a discussion about the Lord's Supper. So last week we talked about authority and submission, and Paul mentions that as he talks about the head coverings and the need for men to look like men and women to look like women. And then in chapter 11 and verse 17, Paul starts to talk about the Lord's Supper. Now, it's interesting that he does this because in chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's been this great discussion about meat that's been sacrificed to idols and how the Christians can't partake of that. They'll be in fellowship with them. But then he talks about our meal, that is the Lord's Supper, that we eat to remember Jesus Christ. And he has some um, challenging things to say to the Corinthians. And as you read through this, 11, beginning in chapter 11 and verse 17, there are some key words or really some key phrases to keep in mind. So if you're with me in chapter 11, the first key phrase or key word to keep in mind is this phrase, come together. You might underline this or make a circle around these words, but see it in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I commend you because when you come together, you see that in verse 17. If you drop down, it's in verse 18 again for in the first place, when you come together and then it's in verse 20 when you come together. So this Lord's Supper aspect and maybe more about that in a moment, something about the Lord's Supper suggests this is a congregational idea. In fact, chapter 11 through 16 is really about a worship service. You've got Lord's Supper, the spiritual gifts in 12, 13 and 14. What Paul's going to mention about them isn't limited to what we do when we come together. But he will talk about speaking in tongues and prophecy in the assembly. And so it's this idea of coming together. The second key phrase or idea is to eat something. If you look at verse 20. When you come together to eat, he mentions it there. And then in verse 21, he talks about eating and getting drunk. And then in verse 22, do you not have houses to eat? And then the third key phrase or idea that runs through this last half of chapter 11 is this idea of divisions among you. So there were divisions among the Corinthians in the eating of the Lord's Supper. And Paul addresses that in verse 18 and verse 19. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it for there must be factions or divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be approved. And then if you drop down to verse 21 and 22, he talks about what the division was over as they were eating the Lord's Supper for an eating. Verse 21, each goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and to drink or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Paul says, absolutely not. 
And so that's what Paul's driving at. It's really an abuse of the Lord's Supper. Let's read 17 down through 22 together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not to it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat for in eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul's first idea is about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. How were they abusing the Lord's Supper based on what Paul mentions in 17 through 22? What was the abuse? So there is an aspect of a full meal. Some people believe this is where the love feast idea comes from. You see it in Jude 12 and also in Second Peter chapter two. But they were doing what else? There's this meal going on. And how were they treating other people in the congregation? They were leaving some of them out. Some were going ahead of others. And at the end, he'll say, wait for one another, tarry for one another as far as the Lord's Supper is concerned. But they were rushing ahead of each other and they weren't taking each other into consideration. Look at verse 19. There must be factions or divisions among you that those who are approved uh, may be known. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul begins this whole section, well, this whole letter by saying, I'm appealing to you guys to stick together, be of the same mind and of the same judgment. But then in chapter 11 and verse 19, he says there have to be divisions. What does Paul mean in verse 19 when he says there must be divisions among you so that the true individuals may be approved? Why must there be divisions? If Paul's pleading in chapter one and verse 10 that there be no divisions, why does he come around in chapter 11 and verse 19 and say this is going to happen? This is a reality. The ones that are doing it right and there are some that are not. Yep, that's part of it. Everybody's not going to get on board is what Paul knows to be the truth and what we know to be the truth. If we have ever dealt with people, right, it's hard to get everybody on the same page. And so Paul is saying there are going to be divisions among you. But you know what's going to happen in those divisions? You'll find out who's who. In first John two eighteen and 19, John talks about the group, not the individual, but the group of people that he refers to as the Antichrist. And he says they went out from us, but they were not of us. They went out from us so that they might be noted that they were never really with us to begin with. This idea of division in the Corinthian church, people that just insist on their own way in spite of all that Paul has written is going to show the people that are truly disciples and those who really aren't interested in Christianity the way that Paul describes it. In fact, in Second Corinthians, in chapter 12, he'll get down to the end of that chapter and he'll say, Now, I've warned you about all these other things and I gave you time and space to repent. But if you haven't, I'm coming a third time and this time I won't spare you. He's going to discipline those who haven't gotten their act together. So there are divisions. One brief thing and then we'll move on to 23 down through 34. But sometimes these verses at the end here, people will use them to suggest that maybe Paul is saying that you can't eat in the in your homes or Paul was saying that they needed to eat their meals at home. And this is a sort of prohibition against the church eating when they come together. Paul's arguing for something very specific in first Corinthians 11. And what is he saying? You have houses to eat in relation to what? In relation to the Lord's Supper, he's saying, don't mix this with a common meal. Don't abuse the Lord's Supper by feasting together like this. But he's not saying don't eat when you come together. Look at verse 22. 
In verse 22, he says, what do you not have houses to eat or drink? If Paul is saying we can never eat and come together at all as a congregation to eat meals together. And if someone tries to take this passage and say this is literally what Paul's arguing for, then the only place that we could eat based on this passage would be where? At home. And imagine what a problem this would have been for the first century church never to eat when they came together or to only eat in their homes and not have any dealings with each other. They met in their homes. You think about the, the congregation that met at Mary's house in Acts 12 and verse 12. And in 1 Corinthians 16, at the end in verse 19, he'll talk about those that are in Aquila and Priscilla's home. And so this is not a prohibition against fellowship meals or anything like that. It's a prohibition against corrupting and disrupting the Lord's Supper as we turn it into a common meal. And we're familiar with verses 23 through 34 as Paul begins to give them the instructions about the Lord's Supper and how it ought to be done. So honoring the Lord in the Lord's Supper, that's 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 34. And Paul says he's received from the Lord what he also delivered to them that the Lord Jesus on the same night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And then so let him eat of that bread and drink of the cup for anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, here it is in verse 33, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the things and about the other things. I will give direction when I come. And so Paul is saying, eat at home so that your appetite doesn't get the best of you. And then you approach the Lord's table with the wrong idea, with the wrong heart. So let's say a few things about the Lord's Supper. Paul says he received it from the Lord and then he delivered it to them. When did the Lord say the things that Paul is going to mention in verses 23 through 26? Paul says he received it from the Lord. When did Jesus say these things about the Lord's Supper? The night he was betrayed. Paul wasn't there, right? Peter could have said, I heard Jesus say I was there. Paul couldn't say that. Paul wasn't a disciple. He wasn't in that upper room. But by inspiration, he receives these words and he recites them just as Jesus gave them to him. The same night in which he's betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And then he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the cup. What does the cup represent? The blood of Jesus. Sometimes people through church history have had a problem with these emblems and what they mean. Some have believed in what's called transubstantiation, which is that the cup is the literal blood of Jesus. And then the bread is the literal body of Jesus. But of course, that's not the case. They're representative elements, right? Jesus says, this is my body. Well, the bread was broken, but that wasn't Jesus's body. Jesus actually gave himself on the cross. And so Jesus gives Paul these Paul these instructions. And then Paul says, I'm giving them to you. Look at verse twenty five. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. How often did the first century church partake of the Lord's Supper? Upon the first day of the week. Acts 20 and verse 7 says on the first day of the week when the disciples came together for the purpose of breaking bread. Paul preached to them, 
ready to depart the next day. And he continued his speech until midnight. But before Acts chapter 20, go to Acts chapter two. Hold your hand in first Corinthians 11 and let's run over to Acts chapter two. Do I get the time back that Russell took from me this morning or what do y'all think? Okay, I'm trying to get through three chapters. We'll see. All right. So Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost is when the church began. That's the first day of the week. Acts two forty one. People were baptized. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Same day they were added unto them about three thousand souls. But then notice verse forty two. This is just as strong as Acts 20 and verse seven for the Lord's Supper. And we might do well to reference it more often. They continued steadfastly or devoted themselves in the apostles doctrine. That's the teaching, the fellowship, the joint participation, probably dealing with the giving of their means. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, in Acts 2.42, the breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper, especially with it being connected and surrounded with those other avenues of worship, which would be fellowship, prayers, preaching and teaching. But notice verse 42. They continue steadfastly or devotedly. That gives at least the hint that this was a regular occurrence because the church, they weren't taken of it yearly or monthly. They hadn't even been Christians that long. And so in Acts 2 and verse 42, there's this regular pattern, and it's what you see in Acts 20 and verse 7. They took of it on the first day of the week. And remember the, one of the key words in 1 Corinthians 11 that we underline? What is that word or that phrase? It's in verse 17, verse 18, and verse 20. When you what? Come together. When would they come together? On the first day of the week. And so Christians from the very beginning were partaking of the Lord's Supper steadfastly. Acts 20 and verse 7 says on the first day of the week, that was really the reason they came together in order to break bread. That same phrase to partake of the Lord's Supper in first Corinthians 10, 16, Paul will say the bread that we break. Is it not the body of the Lord and the cup we drink? Doesn't it represent his blood? And so that phrase breaking of bread is not a common meal. It is in Acts 2 and verse 46. But in Acts 2.42 and in Acts 20 and verse 7, it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Now, here's something else to consider for us about the Lord's Supper. Why do we need to do it so often? What is this in my remembrance? Why do we need to be reminded? Why do you think it's an every week idea that we need to partake of the Lord's Supper? In remembrance of the Lord's death? Yep, that's right. We're forgetful. Okay, in what sense are we forgetful? Do we forget? Could you forget somebody who died for you? That's what Jesus did, right, on the cross. Can we forget him? What what part of us is forgetful? In what way are we forgetful? And the Lord's Supper, in partaking of it weekly, sort of reorients our minds. I agree with Kevin. We are forgetful. But in what sense does the Lord's Supper help us to remember? Every first day of the week, we partake of the Lord's Supper. And we're thinking about what Jesus did when we just did that. Were you reminded that Jesus died for you or did you already know that? You already knew that. So in what sense are we forgetful and in what sense does the Lord's Supper remind us? It doesn't remind us necessarily of the fact, though it may do that. But I think we knew that when we came in. In what sense is the Lord's Supper a reminder and one that we need? Okay, more about worthy and unworthy in a minute. But, yeah, that's right. We look at our lives. That's a part of this. It's an introspective thing. That's right. So in a sense, based on what Paul says in verse 26, we hear two sermons every time we assemble. There's the one that the preacher preaches, but then there's the one that we all preach. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, according to Paul, is a proclamation. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's something we're doing in partaking of the Lord's Supper that says when I eat this bread and when I drink this fruit of the vine, I believe he's coming again. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We say in view of the first 
coming in view of his first advent into the world. We believe about the second one that he will come again. And so we do this until he comes. There's a proclamation aspect to it. Was there another hand? Yep. There. Yeah. You think about Jesus on the night he was betrayed with his disciples for centuries. Jews have been partaking of what they know as the Passover from Exodus 12. The man was supposed to get before his house with the staff in his hand, belt girded about him, ready to go at a moment's notice. And he would tell his family the story of what happened when Moses delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And there would be a lamb, you know, that they sacrificed and all of those things. But in Matthew 26 and in Luke 22 and in Mark 14, the lamb wasn't on the table. He was at the head of the table. First Corinthians five, seven says he is our Passover sacrifice for us. He institutes his own memorial and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do it and remember me and his blood is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so just one more time, let's go back. What does the Lord's Supper help us to remember? He's coming again. He instituted his own memorial. What else? The power of his sacrifice and what it means for our lives. It reorients Monday through Saturday, we may I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I study it. I believe it. But so many other things are saying, you know, this really matters. This is the most important thing in the world. You've got to get these bills paid. And we're worried about this with the doctors and so many things in our family and relationship. And every first day of the week, at least for a moment in time, the world stands still. And we remember that Jesus died for our sins. And if we're Christians, all is right with us in heaven And with one another on earth as we're reconciled to God and we do proclaim his death until he comes. And that is a reminder that, you know what? One day God's going to fix everything. And he has already begun that and what Jesus has done for us. And we proclaim his death until he comes. We need that reminder. The reality that Jesus died, yes, but the power of the sacrifice and what it ultimately changed for us is something that we need to be reminded of over and over again. And that happens on a weekly basis. Does somebody else have a hand that I missed? Yep, Daryl. What was that? Um, give me a verse on that approved. I don't see it. Oh, 19. OK. Yeah. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Um, I'm not so he may be. He may be. I'm not sure if he's saying they're not Christians or not, but. It seems like he may be saying those that are among them because of verse 17 and verse 18, this when you come together, um, who's genuine among them or not. But maybe that's right. The genuine are those that are Christians and those that are not. I think it is one of my teachers and mentors. He said when he teaches somebody the gospel and they obey it, the very next thing he talks to them about is the Lord's Supper. For a lot of reasons. But one is depending on when they get baptized, it's common for people to be baptized during the week. One of the very next things they're going to do on that first Lord's Day is do what? Partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, maybe they've done it before as a visitor and a non-Christian, not really knowing or appreciating the significance. But it's going to be different now. And so maybe when somebody's immersed, we start talking to them about and probably some of this happens in the Bible study. But also, hey, you're going to be worshiping God. And this is how we do things. And this is why Paul's writing to people who are already Christians. And he's saying you need to be reminded about these things. And so that's a good point. We do need to instruct and teach them. Let's go down in here in verse 27. Whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Well, let's back up. Let's hold on 27. I did want to make one more comment about the previous statement that Paul makes here. This when you come together. What does that say to us about the importance of the Lord's Supper? When you get down to verse 28, he's going to say, let a man examine himself. We may think about the Lord's Supper as individuals, and it involves that for sure. But it also is something that we do together. 
the Lord's Supper is a congregational endeavor. When you come together, what does that say to us about the importance of coming together and the Lord's Supper? It's expected. Doesn't say if there's an assumption that we will. You're sharing the Lord's death together. What else? When you come together in the Lord's Supper, if I'm going to partake of the Lord's Supper rightly, then I need to do what? I need to be with God's people. I need to assemble with them. Paul's saying when you come together, you need to be remembering the Lord's death in this idea. And I know sometimes we say the Lord's Supper is important and it is. But it's not the mo- the Bible doesn't say this is the most important. All the avenues of worship that we engage in are important. I've known people that take the Lord's Supper and they leave. It's like the spiritual snack for the day. Well, they've got that. Then they're good with God. It's not a magic potion. It doesn't make us right with God because we've taken the supper. All of this is involved in worship and we do it when we come together. And so part of being in the assembly is to proclaim the Lord's death together as we partake of the meal. And Hebrews 10:25 says, don't abandon the saints, don't abandon the gathering. And one of the reasons why is so that we can partake of the Lord's Supper together. Now, verse 27 says we're to eat whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That's the ESV. The King James has kind of misled us on some of this when it translates this adverb unworthily. And people have gotten the idea that, well, I'm not I was really bad this week. And so I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper because I'm unworthy. And this idea is, well, I'm not righteous enough to partake the Lord's Supper. Who is worthy to take the Lord's Supper? Nobody in and of themselves. All right. And so what does this verse in verse 27 mean when it says to take of it in an unworthy manner? Yeah, it's kind of strange to say I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper because I'm not good enough. The very fact of the supper suggests that we're not right. There had to be a death because we're not good enough. Then if he says, well, you've got to behave well enough to take it, that defeats the purpose of us needing a savior. So it's not about our righteous behavior. The day, the weeks when we feel the worst is probably the Sunday we need it the most. As we remember, oh, yes, the death covered the raggedy life I live Monday through Saturday, not to continue in sin that grace may abound, but to remind us that forgiveness. Neil talked about it today, climbing out of desperation. Our failings don't define us. And so an unworthy manner, according to Paul here, is to not take the Lord's Supper seriously in the time when we're engaging in it. Having our minds on something else, Derek. Right. Yeah. So God's going to do the judging on us to see whether or not we're approved. Yep. Has anybody ever struggled to keep their mind focused on the death of Jesus during the Lord's Supper? Show of hands. The rest of you are saints. But the the normal people, we struggle sometimes with that, right? It's hard. And so what this means is in that moment, I've got to be focused. And there are varying degrees of this. Some people are wrestling with children in the pews. I believe God knows that. He sees that and understands that for sure. But we need to be doing the very best that we can. To focus in that moment. It's not a time to say, well, the trace passed me. Let me see if the Cowboys are up or what's going on with the weather or something like that. We need to be focused on the Lord's death until he comes. And there are some things that we might do to focus our mind. Maybe you would just take Isaiah 53 and read that and make that your passage for the month. And then next month you say every Lord's Day, I'm in Matthew 26 and you do whatever you have to do. You pray a prayer, you focus your mind, you get oriented. 
because this is a serious occasion. And to partake of the Lord's Supper and to not be focused on that is to do it in an unworthy way. And then Paul says, if you do that in the very act of partaking of the supper, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. And many Corinthians died as a result. There's this plague that swept through the Corinthian church. And he says many people died because they played with the Lord's Supper. Aren't we glad we're not in the miraculous age today? Because sometimes we've taken of it and our minds haven't been where they need to be. And so Paul's encouraging them to get their minds centered in the right place and to do things in the right way to honor God, discerning the Lord's body and doing it to honor him. Waiting on one another in verse 33 and then in verse 34, eat your meal at home and then come together to partake of the Lord's Supper in a way that honors him. We're going to transition to chapter 12. But before we do, I just want us to think about what we do with the Lord's Supper. I knew a man one time who was a preacher. He is a preacher. He's a member of the church and where he worshiped. There was this guy who was a Baptist preacher who started to attend services at the Lord's Church on Sunday nights. And um, he started coming and he they eventually had a Bible study. But the point was, he came, he said, you know what, you guys really stick to the Bible. And that's impressive. And the congregational singing, I just love that without any accompaniment of mechanical instruments of music. That's encouraging. And the way you do your giving and all of that. And then he said. But, you know, the way you guys partake of the Lord's Supper is probably the most irreverent that I've ever seen. Now, I don't know what he meant about all that. I wasn't there. And I know it's a Sunday night and people do that in different ways and have different customs. But what I am saying is we may think, well, the Corinthians, they're jumping ahead of each other. They're rushing past each other. And so they were doing something terrible. But we need to make sure that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we don't rush through it. That we don't worry about being so efficient that we're just getting on to the next thing. And just how can we get past this and. We really do need to take time. That takes time for individuals to do that. And we need to take time to reflect and to take our time and to read a passage of Scripture, maybe to ourselves or to pray, but to do whatever we can to do it in a way that honors and glorifies him, to get our minds oriented around what we're doing. This just isn't a box that we check as we're running through worship. We might eat and drink condemnation unto ourselves. And so this isn't where we try to become we just got we got to keep worship at an hour. And so, Lord's Supper, let's just sprint through and pray and do what we got to do to get through it. Paul's saying this is serious business and God's going to hold us accountable for how we partake of it. All right. Any more questions on First Corinthians 11 before we go to 12 through 14? That's right. And I think that takes effort. That takes attention like everything else we do in worship, like a preacher prepares sermons and a song leader prepares songs. And you write out the check before you, you know, before you get ready to give that contribution. And the more times you partake of the Lord's Supper, I believe that sometimes the more of a challenge it is to fix your mind every first day of the week to get it right. And because of that, some people have tried to remove that and say, look, we don't need to partake of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis because it's going to become mundane. People are going to get used to it. Maybe if we made it quarterly or weekly, you know, they never say that about the collection. But anyway, the reality is the mundane part of it isn't about the supper. It's about our minds and our hearts. And Paul says we can get them in the right place. Chapter 12, chapter 13 and 14 all go together. And the whole concept is about being spiritual. Now, in chapter 12, in the opening verses, the translators supply the word spiritual gifts. And I think if you, what you look at, if you look at what Paul says in the rest of the chapter, that bears out. But ultimately, the Greek text has a word pneumatikos, which means just spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual, by the way? What does it mean? A lot of people say this now. I've met people that have said, I'm not religious. I'm what? I'm spiritual. 
I'm a spiritual person. I'm in tune with my spiritual side. We use that term all the time. What does it mean to be spiritual? If somebody asks you to define that term, that phrase, are you a spiritual person? Yes or no? Let's start there. Are you spiritual? Shake or nod. Who's spiritual? Okay, now I've got you on the hook. What does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritual? To be guided by the spirit. Okay. Yep, that's right. Paul says that if we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, 16. What else? To be spiritual. What do you think that means? Okay. So there is a spiritual aspect to everybody, no matter what. Christian, unbeliever, all of us have a spiritual side to us. That's for sure. We're made in the image of God. But when you say I'm a spiritual person, I'm living in harmony with God. What does that mean to be a spiritual person? Paul's going to tell us, by the way, in chapter 12, 13 and 14, what it really means to be spiritual, because the problem the Corinthians were having was they thought to be spiritual meant they had the be- whoever had the best gift to speak in tongues to them, to speak in these different languages. Paul will ultimately conclude in chapter 14 that prophecy is better than tongues. He's just going to come right out and say that prefer prophecy over tongues because it accomplishes more in the church. But they thought it was about who had the best talent. So what does it mean to be spiritual, to be made in the image of God, to be led by the spirit? And that's right. But we need a little bit more definition. What is the spirit? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? Like that's how most people mean to use the term. Yeah, that's right. That's what most people in the world mean when they say I'm spiritual. It means. I'm not interested in organized religion. I'm on good terms with God by myself and I don't need to congregate, which is interesting. Paul comes right after chapter 11 saying when you come together several times and then he says, hey, here's how spiritual people behave. And so if we're really going to be spiritual, we come together. Here's what Paul gives us in chapters 12, 13 and 14. Daryl. Yes. That's right. What Paul outlines in the next three chapters is Christ likeness. And this is how he does it. In chapter 12, Paul says what it means to be a spiritual person. It means to use the gifts that God has given you and to honor people that have different gifts. In chapter 13, to be a spiritual person is to be motivated by love and everything that you do. And then finally, in chapter 14, Paul's going to make this point to be a spiritual person means to use your gifts and abilities for the purpose of building up the people of God and never to show off for your own purposes, to make the kingdom of God better in the way in the time in which we live and to do all things for the purpose of edifying and building up. So let's just briefly go through these. We don't have time to read them, but we've got two Sundays, so we've got to do this. All right. So chapter 12, the first thing Paul says is. There are differing gifts. If you look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and we won't read this for time's sake, but Paul's going to say that there are gifts given. And as was mentioned a moment ago, to be led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gave miraculous gifts in the first century. Can you think of some of the gifts that were given? And you can cheat and look in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 8. But what are some of the miraculous gifts that people possessed in the first century? Healing. Prophecy. Speaking in tongues. Wisdom. What else? Somebody said they're getting all the ones I'm reading. Okay. um, Interpretation of tongues. Yeah, all of those are spiritual gifts. God gave them for what reason? To spread the word for the building up. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says they're given till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ so that the church can be mature and complete. So you think about people obeying the gospel in the first century. No New Testament. They've got the Old Testament. They're learning all these things. And these gifts are helping to really flesh out the church, to build up the body of Christ, the speaking in tongues, the healing. Romans 12 even says that giving was a spiritual gift. 
exhortation or encouragement. And so we'll see in 1 Corinthians 13 that the miraculous age has ceased. But does God still give gifts today? What kind? They're not miraculous. We don't have miraculous gifts today. Would you say that God still gives people gifts today? Roger. Okay, so God gives people the gift to teach. Yeah, God still gives gifts, but they're not miraculous, right? But God's not limited to the miraculous. That's what people need to appreciate. Sometimes when you say to a person, you know, miracles don't happen today. The miraculous age has ceased. They say, well, you're limiting God. No, the actual, actually, the reverse is true. To say that the only channel that God has is miraculous, and when the miraculous age ceases, God ceases to work, is a failure to appreciate that God doesn't merely need to use the miraculous. He's spectacular enough to use the ordinary, and that's what he does in our dispensation. And so God has given every one of us gifts. And this is what Paul says throughout the rest of this chapter. Look at chapter 12, and we'll just pick out some of these. We go to 1130, right? No? Well, I plan to. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, we'll just stop when they quit. Um, Paul says we all have a gift. In verse 21 down through 26, he says everybody has a gift. And nobody should say, well, I'm not a preacher, so... They could get on without me or I'm not an elder. See, God's given every one of us something. Every one of us. Nobody is exempt from this. And we not only have a gift, but we have a responsibility to use it. Some of us are gifted in technology. Some of us are gifted in caring for others and cooking and encouragement. And all of those things are needed to make the body globally, but especially at Lehman Avenue, what she is. And the church is robbed, really, when you don't use the gift that you have. So when people say, well, you should get off the pew, you should do more, you should be involved, you should have skin in the game here in the congregation. It's more than just getting you involved. It's not to earn God's love. You can't. We can't. But the body needs the gifts that you possess. What every one of us should be saying is, "Okay, what do I have? What has God given me? You've got the five talent man, the two talent man. And then who else? The one talent man. The one talent man was rebuked in the parable, wasn't he? Because he pretended to be the zero talent man who doesn't exist. Every one of us has something and it's our responsibility to figure out what do I have? What do I have right now? Not what I have when retirement comes or when my kids get older or when I'm finished with school. What do you have right now that you owe the Lord to give him return back on it? Paul saying everybody has a gift and all of the gifts matter and we all need to use them. Now, chapter 13. We need to make sure that we use the gifts in love. That's the driving force. Mike, go ahead. That's right. But, you know, our eyes play tricks on us sometimes and we may get the impression that the person or the people that are most important in the local church are the people that are up the most. Since we brought this up, let's just go back to chapter 12. I want to note something um, in chapter 12 and go back up to verse 22 or really 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you or again to the feet. I have no need of you. Look at 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Necessary or indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. And then he's going to go on through there. Paul's point is preachers need encouragement. That's great. But that's kind of a given. Preachers are encouraged all the time. What about people that hold the doors or that teach cradle roll? We need to seek the gifts that we think are less honorable. And Paul says not only do they deserve honor, he says they're indispensable. We couldn't do the work without them. There is no church without the women and the men and people that are involved in the various groups that we have. They matter. And as Mike mentioned, they matter to the exact same degree as preaching or shepherding. All of it matters. And that's Paul's point. Derek. 
We do. That's right. And we, and we shouldn't spend so much time worrying about what we can't do. Every one of us needs to be involved in making disciples, but every one of us is just not going to do a Bible study. And I've preached lessons about that, but you know when you study 1 Corinthians 12, that sandcastle just tumbles. It just does. Paul doesn't say everybody in the church needs to be equipped to go out and teach a Bible study. But we can be involved in making disciples. You can give an invitation. You can give a kind word. You can do something. And instead of worrying about the areas where we're deficient, we should say, what can I do? Chapter 13 says, when you do it, do it in love. It's funny. They're arguing over tongues. The first thing Paul leads off with in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 is about tongues. And what does he conclude in chapter 13? No matter what you're able to do, if you gave all the money in the world to missions, if you adopted every orphan, if you died as a martyr, if you did it without love, it wouldn't be worth anything to God. The most important thing that Christians possess is ultimately our love. Well, since y'all are sitting still, we'll just do 14 real quick. Chapter 14, what Paul says essentially is focus on edification and build each other up and make sure that everything you do, people shouldn't come into the assembly and see chaos as people are fighting to be seen. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. First Corinthians 14, and do everything in an orderly fashion. Verse 40, we should use our gifts collectively. We should use them in love and we should do it so that we build each other up. And not put each other down. We're not in competition with each other. We're in cooperation with each other and with the God of heaven. So next week, we'll look at chapter 15 on the resurrection and Paul's closing remarks in chapter 16. Thanks for a good Bible class. Thanks for all the comments and questions. I appreciated the study.